0: Dinner that night was not the sort of thing Waldorf Astoria guests were used to. Well, how could it be? It wasn't every night that the Waldorf Astoria was holding its last meal. And it wasn't closing for the season. It wasn't closing for renovations. It was closing permanently. The dining room they were now sitting in would be, in only a matter of months, Or was it weeks? Pure rubble. After that, the space would just be the ground floor of a giant, very modern, and very tall skyscraper. Or that's what people were calling them these days, at least. Buildings so tall, they seemed to scrape the very bottom of the heavens. But that was the future. Right now, this dinner was all about the past. The glory filled past of the most luxurious hotel New York City and indeed the world had ever seen. It was, after all, the Waldorf Astoria. Today, if you live or know New York City, you'll probably know the giant hulk that is the Waldorf Astoria Hotel building. It sits astride Park, and Lexington Avenues, taking up one full Manhattan city block. Of course, these days, you don't see much, except for construction hoarding at least. The Giant Hotel, which once was the must-stay location for U.S. presidents, international celebrities, and visiting royalty, has gone dark. It's in the middle of a massive renovation that will see most of the hotel's former rooms, transformed into condominiums. The transformation is expected to take about two to three years, and it's the longest time the hotel has ever been closed, barring one notable example. You're listening to The Feast. I'm your host, Laura Carlson. Well, this is it, the last episode of Season 3. And before we take a summer break, we thought... For our last episode, we'd close off the season with what we do best, a meal straight from the history books. We also thought, since we're spending a little more time in New York these days, we'd do something about the famous Big Apple. And hey, we also found a feast for you that took place almost exactly 90 years ago to the day, in May of 1929. How's that for timing? Now, as I was saying, For over 100 years, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel has been among the best, most luxurious, and most famous hotels in New York City. How that reputation will change when it reopens in 2020 or 2021, who's to say? But that giant building on Park Avenue has hosted debutante balls. Grace Kelly held her engagement party there in 1956. One year later, Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip stayed at the hotel during their first trip to the United States. And those examples are barely scratching the surface of this hotel's history. Former U.S. President Herbert Hoover actually moved into the hotel after the death of his wife in 1944. He lived at the Waldorf Astoria for the last 20 years of his life. I could also tell you about the secret train that runs underneath the hotel, which apparently shuttled President Franklin D. Roosevelt to and from meetings in New York during the 1940s. Oh, and that track still exists, apparently. Or so I'm told. You might also know the Waldorf for its culinary contributions. Waldorf salad, of course, perhaps being the most famous. Followed by the dish beloved by brunch-goers everywhere, Eggs Benedict. Of course, like many recipe origin stories, the claim the Waldorf has made about originating both dishes has been disputed over the years. But let's just say the Waldorf became famous for its food. And we'll get into that origin story of salad a little later, something to chat over during the main course of tonight's event. But all this rich history that I'm mentioning, all the stories about famous Andy Warhol parties, about Sinatra, about Marilyn Monroe, well, all that came after the feast we're talking about today. And in some way, it was this dinner that made all those later famous moments and parties and dinners possible. But ironically, it also was the last meal, the real Waldorf Astoria, ever served. Let me explain. Where the Waldorf Astoria sits today, between 49th and 50th streets in Midtown Manhattan, is not where this legendary hotel was born. For that, you'd have to move about 15 or so blocks downtown, between 33rd and 34th streets. And the reason for the move is all down to why we're here tonight. To celebrate the last meal at the Waldorf's original location before it would be rebuilt and remade 20 blocks uptown. And why the move? We'll get to it all in good time. Let's focus on getting you to this famous last meal first. The menu tonight comes straight from the annals of the Waldorf Astoria, recorded for posterity on one of the final evenings before the hotel closed its original location. And you've been lucky enough to score a seat, alongside 800 of your closest friends, at that famous last meal, served on May 1st, 1929. To be admitted to this farewell meal, you will of course have been expected to pay around $10.00. which. Seems like a downright bargain when you think about it. But then again, $10 in 1929 money would be more along the lines of about $150 today. Still, not a bad price for such a historic occasion. And seated in the hotel's magnificent banquet room, you'd notice that things are not exactly running as usual tonight. Being a well-heeled member of Manhattan society, You'd, of course, be familiar with the usual state of things at the Waldorf. The usual high attention to detail, the lavish decor, the gleaming silverware service at each place setting. Well, not tonight. Tonight, the chairs, the tables, the coat racks are all bedecked in little white tags, scorecards for the auctioneers, selling off the relics of the Waldorf to the highest bidder tomorrow or the day after, The auctioneers have been at it for weeks. It's a big hotel, after all. And the hotel has held on to just enough to throw this dinner tonight. But tomorrow morning, even these few relics, like the chairs and the tables, will be on the auction block. And to prevent any would-be souvenir hunters from slipping an odd fork or spoon into their purse, the Waldorf has instead provided only cheap cutlery tonight. The silver has long since been packed away or sold. And I should say, before dinner is served tonight, there will also be a live concert marking the final meal of the Waldorf. Folks throughout the U.S. will be able to tune in at 5.30 p.m. to hear a live broadcast of the evening music, a fitting tribute as the Waldorf's ballrooms were among the first to ever feature a live radio broadcast well let's not dwell on these small details let's focus on this first course that's arriving a classic cherry stone clam cocktail followed by clear green turtle soup with celery salted almonds and olives well all these are popular appetizers for early 20th century new york and classic ones after all we're in new england Clam country. And you might notice that I haven't mentioned any beverages yet to go with this famous last meal. Well, remember, it is 1929. We are deep in the heart of Prohibition America. No wine or beer with dinner here. The only cocktails you'll be having are the ones that come with clams. Not that the Waldorf Astoria didn't have a bar. Well, at least, the original pre-Prohibition Waldorf Astoria did. It was known as the Quadrangle, and before Prohibition, it was one of the poshest places to wet one's whistle in all New York. But thanks to Prohibition, the Quadrangle had been shuttered long ago, almost a decade before this final night, which probably more than one patron of tonight's final feast regretted the missed chance to enjoy one final highball over at the Quadrangle before it was condemned, like the rest of the building, to dirt and rubble. So while we mull over our appetizers, maybe it's high time we also talk about the history of this fine establishment. So as we dig into our clam cocktails and sip our green turtle soup, let's remember how this whole hotel business got started. Now, the hotel's name might give half the game away. Named, of course, for the Astor family veritable royalty of New York society and billionaires before the end of the 19th century. But in truth, the Astors had been in the hotel game for more than a century by 1929, a business the family was involved in, almost as far back as their arrival in the United States. The original John Jacob Astor, who had left his German village of Waldorf in the late 1700s, arrived in New York and set up shop as a fur trader. Seeing the growing city of New York, he realized real estate was his ticket to success. He soon owned several tenement buildings, but also expanded into the hotel industry. He built what was known as the Astor House Hotel on Broadway in the early 1800s. And even then, before the Astor name was a synonym for wealth, Astor's Hotel was quickly known for its luxury, featuring the novel and, at the time, scandalously decadent, feature of indoor plumbing. Two generations later, the family was to return to the hotel business. But luxury in the 1890s, at least as far as the Astors were concerned, meant a whole new ballgame. The man behind the new Astor Hotel was John Jacob Astor's grandson, William Waldorf Astor. The man who was to bring hotels back to the family was John Jacob Astor's grandson, William Waldorf Astor, who grew up with not necessarily a proverbial, but rather a literal silver spoon in his mouth. In 1890, William's father had died, leaving behind a fortune that made William the richest man in America. William was the very definition of the leisure class at this point, And William decided to do what apparently any richest man in America does, then or now. He built a hotel. Well, it wasn't just any hotel. Fed up with his family's Manhattan home on 33rd Street and Fifth Avenue, he decided to tear the whole house down, building instead in its place a giant hotel, one that would offer its guests every modern convenience and luxury they could imagine. Now, this was an ambitious move, no matter what. But it wasn't just a daring business move. It also had more than a tinge of a family feud about it. You see, directly next door to William Astor's former home and current hotel lived his cousin, an arch-rival, John Jacob Astor IV, often known as Jack. (laughs) John Jacob Astor IV lived there with his mother, Caroline, who, more often than not, was called simply Mrs. Astor. And, well, William had never really gotten along with his cousin or his aunt. You could make the argument that William's brand new Waldorf Hotel that he built on his family's property was a pure business decision. Building this massive business right next door to your cousin and aunt's house well, it's not exactly the most neighborly thing to do. Once the Waldorf opened in 1893, which William named after the family's homeland in Germany, Jack and his mother, Mrs. Astor, took to calling the building next door the Tavern. The Waldorf, against everyone's expectations, was a huge success, taking in $4.5 million in its first year alone. Once Jack and Mrs. Astor saw how popular the new Waldorf Hotel was becoming, and especially how much money it was making their relative, the sneers stopped altogether. Not four years went by before Jack and Mrs. Astor knocked down their own home to build the Astor Hotel, right next door to the Waldorf. And of course, family rivalry being what it was, the Astor Hotel was slightly taller at 17 stories, and just slightly more extravagant than the original Waldorf. But apparently, nothing settles family feuds like the prospect of making money. The Waldorf and the Astoria hotels joined forces, becoming the Waldorf Astoria as we know it today. The two buildings, although built independently, were connected by an ornate corridor between the two which soon took the name of Peacock Alley. Legend had it that the corridor was built to be fully collapsible in case old family bickering required the two hotels to function independently at some point in the future. As for the origin of its name, well, specifics have been lost to the sands of time, but it has been suggested by more than one that the corridor soon became the see-and-be-seen spot for the New York fashion set, with women strutting the alley to show off their latest fashion finery. This dedication to luxury, the opulent banquet halls that were soon to host performances, society meetings, political rallies, and its prime location on Fifth Avenue, well, the Waldorf Astoria was soon a roaring success, becoming the place to be for any resident or visitor to New York throughout the rest of the 19th and into the dawn of the 20th century. So our appetizers have set the stage. How the Waldorf Astoria became the hit hotel of early 20th century New York. But what about its food? Now, that's all to come in the main course, which is, of course, a selection. You have your choice of crown of bass with lobster sauce, spring lamb, or supreme of guinea hen with a spicy tomato and herb sauce, this is all accompanied by green peas and butter, potatoes persian with garlic sauce and parsley, and salad diplomat. I promised you food, didn't I? Now make your selection of fish, lamb, or hen, and let me tell you about the Waldorf's famous food scene. Now you may have noticed that despite the hotel lending its very name to the now famous Waldorf Salad, a combination of apples, celery, and walnuts, and a cream dressing, of course. There's no Waldorf Salad on the menu tonight. Granted, it's usually more a feature on lunch menus than formal dinners, but surely you'd think the hotel would at least celebrate its famous food on a night like this. Now, the origin for this famous salad, as I mentioned, is slightly controversial. But at least according to Waldorf records, the salad was born around the same time as the hotel itself, which was for the first major charity event the hotel hosted back in 1893, when it was still, of course, just the Waldorf. Which explains why it's just the Waldorf salad, not the Waldorf Astoria salad. Now, the event I was mentioning was a charity ball, held in honor of the nearby St. Mary's Hospital for Children on March 14, 1893. Now, many folks attribute the famous Oscar Schirsky as the man behind this iconic sound. Oscar was the maitre d' at the Waldorf, and then the Waldorf Astoria, for over fifty years. The man was an institution, more often than not referred to simply as Oscar of the Waldorf. He even published his own two volume cookbook about his time at the Waldorf, published in 1896 one year before the hotel became the Waldorf Astoria. Now naturally, his cookbook includes a recipe for Waldorf salad, which reads, Peel two raw apples and cut them into small pieces, say about half an inch square. Also, cut some celery the same way and mix it with the apple. Be very careful not to let any seeds of the apples be mixed with it. The salad must be dressed with a good mayonnaise. If you're up on your Waldorf salad ingredients, you'll note the missing ingredient of walnuts. Well, turns out, variations on the Waldorf salad were ten a penny only a few years after Oscar's book was published and became popular. Some recipes insisted on whipped cream, for example, instead of mayo as the dressing. Ugh. Others put raisins into the dish. And eventually, some bright young thing threw in a handful of walnuts. And the rest, as we say, is history. But getting back to the point. No, there was no Waldorf salad on the menu that night. Instead, there was Salad Diplomat. Which, after a little research, turns out to just be an early 20th century version of chicken salad. In fact, its name may come from an entire brand of Diplomat Foods, who sold their chicken salad in jars throughout the early 20th century. Not entirely different from the Waldorf salad, the Diplomat salad includes chicken, celery, olives, with a dash of pimiento or pickled peppers. Apparently, very popular in lunch counters throughout the U.S. in the early 20th century. And if you're interested in seeing some old ads and recipes for Salad Diplomat, we'll put some up on our website and Instagram, at Feast underscore podcast. But let's get back to Oscar of the Waldorf for a minute, so-called inventor of the Waldorf salad. Well, as I said, he lasted at the hotel for 50 years. There, almost from the very beginning of the hotel itself, lasting through the monumental change of 1929, moving with the hotel uptown to its new location. Newspapers that featured a description of the 1929 closure of the Waldorf Astoria were keen to assure their readers that, yes indeed, there would still be an Oscar of the Waldorf even after 1929. Well, after all this, I think it's high time to move on to dessert, don't you? And for the final course, we have Balm Mercedes Ice Cream, a very popular, very French, molded ice cream. A recipe found in Escoffier's cookbook. Essentially, it was a blend of apricot ice filled with an ice cream flavored with chartreuse, a French herbal liqueur. Following that would be macarons, cakes, and some coffee. Topped all off with a refreshing Apollinaris water, a very popular German brand of mineral water. Think of it as the La Croix of its day. No after-dinner cocktails for this Prohibition-era crowd, of course, unless you want to pop over to the nearby speakeasy for a cheeky cocktail afterwards. Legend has it that this particular speakeasy around the corner even has the original wooden bar top from the Waldorf's famous Quadrangle Bar, bought for a song back at the start of Prohibition. But as we finish our ice cream and sip our coffee, let's consider. What does the future have in store for this famous site. What possible reason could New York or the hotel's owners have to demolish this landmark of Manhattan? Well, as I already mentioned, a skyscraper is soon to be built here. Plans are being laid for it to be, as they say, the tallest building in the world. And from what I hear, they're thinking of calling it the Empire State Building. When you look back 90 years, to this dinner in May of 1929, it's hard to realize how little the folks sitting in this glorious ballroom knew what lay in store for the city, and indeed the world, over the next one year, let alone ten. In less than six months' time, the stock market would crash, plunging the country into the Great Depression. And yet even so, that monumental skyscraper, the Empire State Building, All 102 stories of it would be completed in less than two years' time. Opened in 1931, it would stand as the tallest building in the world for almost 40 years until 1970. Meanwhile, the new Waldorf Astoria Uptown on 49th Street would be built in similar record time, opening in the same year as the Empire State in 1931. At 47 stories, It was the tallest hotel in the world when it opened, and immediately resumed its standard for luxury and opulence that its predecessor downtown had been famous for. And of course when it opened, the famous maitre d' Oscar was there too. The building immediately became the spot for the powerful and the privileged of New York to spend their time. A new Peacock Alley bar was opened, a nod to the original corridor between the Waldorf and the Astoria. And the hotel would go on to host some of the most important events in both popular and political culture for the rest of the 20th century. A Waldorf World Peace Conference was held at the hotel in the 1950s to protest the tensions of the Cold War. The purchase of the famous ancient Dead Sea Scrolls was conducted secretly in the hotel's basement. And beyond that, there have been starlets, celebrities, prime ministers, presidents, and royals who have stayed or dined at the Waldorf Astoria. And who knows, perhaps in two or three years' time when the hotel reopens, it will be the must-stay location once again. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, Editor-at-Large and American Import Overseer Mike Port. If you'd like to find out more about the history and food of the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, make sure to visit our website, at thefeastpodcast.org. As always, we'll feature bonus photos and info on our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages at feast underscore podcast. Also, make sure you're signed up for our newsletter. You can catch up with all the Feast summer happenings while we're on break. You can find more information about that via our website. And as always, if you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app of choice. And, well, that's it for this season. Make sure you're subscribed to the show to catch us when we're back for season four so you don't miss any of our great meals that made history. And while we're on break, why not catch up on our back catalogue? It's hard to believe, but we have over 60 episodes now. So now is the perfect time to catch up on any of the episodes you may have missed over the years. And always feel free to drop us a line if you have an idea for the show. You can leave us a message at our website... Or you can get to us directly by email at thefeast at thefeastpodcast.org. Well, until next season, when we'll be back with another smorgasbord of meals that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast.